Mishnah Parak Parak Yud Beis and Mishnah Tess until Mishnah Tess Parak Aleph Mishnah Aleph. This Mishnah continues from the previous Mishnah talking about items that are made up of multiple parts and whether those multiple parts are each considered to be a utensil in and of themselves or are they all a smaller part of one larger item. And there are two different ramifications that this could have. One is if a source of impurity has contact with one part of the item, does the entire item become tome, as if it all touched the source of impurity, or only the part which touched it, and then the rest of the utensil is considered to be like a separate utensil that touched the item that became tome. And the second ramification is with regards to the purification procedure, that if the mechatos is sprinkled onto the item and it only touches one of the parts... Does the entire item become purified because it's all considered to be the same item? Or perhaps do we need to make sure that the mechatos is sprinkled on each of the individual parts? This Mishnah lists the number of items that Midiraisa, according to the strict letter of the law, is considered to be two separate items. And therefore you would need to sprinkle the mechatos on each of the items individually. And if one of the parts became tome, it would not automatically make the rest of the item impure as well. However, because the different parts do combine to make up a larger item and they are usually used together and kept together, stuck as one, because of that, Majira Bonon, as a rabbinic stringency, we do need to view them as one, and obviously that only applies as a stringency. So with regards to the purification procedure, you would still need to make sure that the Mechatos touches each of the parts. However, with regards to the question of whether the entire item becomes tome when only one of the parts touches the source of impurity, with regards to that, we are strict and we say that the entire item indeed becomes tome. Hasalim Shabakantel, baskets that are hung on either side of a donkey, and they would carry produce or fertilizer in these baskets. And this basically consisted of two different baskets which were tied together at their top and hung one basket from either side of the donkey. The Hamitoshel Tarbol, this refers to a very heavy wooden board, literally it means a bed, it refers to a very heavy wooden board that had metal at the bottom bottom of it, and it would be tied to the back of animals like oxen, and they would walk through the field, and this was a method of cutting the grain off of the ground. The Kerenshel Kaliva, literally a horn, that is attached to a bed used at a funeral. A cleaver refers to that which a dead body is placed on to be carried during a funeral, and a dead body would be tied to a metal horn that was attached to the top of this surface in order that the dead body not fall off. And animal horns that were used by people going on a journey and traveling in order to keep water in those horns or to fill up water using those horns. And a chain of multiple keys that are hanging from that chain. And items of clothing that those whose occupation it is to wash the clothes. They would stitch multiple items of clothing together. For example, if the uh, if a particular person bought uh, multiple items of clothing to be washed, in order that they be kept together, they would temporarily stitch them together. This and pretty much all of the examples over here are things that are attached to the rest of the utensil, but not permanently. The beged shutofer bekilayim and a item of clothing that has been stitched with kilayim. Or shatnas. Shatnas refers to a mixture of wool and linen. 
that have been stitched into a garment, it's forbidden to wear such an item of clothing, and therefore the wool or the linen is going to end up being taken out of the item of clothing, so that the person will be able to wear it. So this is also considered to be only temporarily there. The Bishop says all of these items, they are considered to be attached and connected as one large item with regards to becoming impure, because that is the stringency midrabonon, because at the end of the day they are connected, albeit not permanently. However, it is not considered to be connected as one item as far as the sprinkling of the mechatos is concerned, and therefore in order for each of the parts to be purified, each of the individual parts would need to be sprinkled with the mechatos in and of themselves. The lid of a kettle that is attached to the actual kettle with a chain. Bishamai remember, Bishamai say that although, according to the strict letter of the law, these are considered to be two separate utensils, they're only connected by a chain, it's very easy to take it off, and we don't view it as performing exactly the same function together. Nevertheless, because they, at the end of the day, are currently connected, they are considered to be connected as one large item with regards to becoming Tomei. This is a stringency midrabonon, but it's not considered to be connected as one large item in terms of sprinkling the mechatos onto it. Beishilo say that it is considered to be like one large item. However, it's clear over here that one part is secondary to the rest of the kettle. And so his alamecham, if he sprinkled the mechatos onto the kettle itself, then huzah kisri, it's considered to be that the lid has also been sprinkled with mechatos. That sprinkling helps to purify that secondary part as well. However, Hiza al-Hakisui, if he only sprinkled the mechatos onto the lid of the kettle, which is the secondary part, so it's not considered to be that the entire main part of the kettle has been sprinkled, because the status of the main part of the kettle is certainly not going to be defined by, and it's not going to follow the status and the purification of the lid. Continues the Mishnah, it is learned from Psukim that Hakol Kishen Lhazais, anybody, any person is fitting to sprinkle the Mechatos onto another person in order to purify him, or onto an item, it doesn't have to be a, specifically a Koyen, Chutz, except for Mitumtum Vandroginus Vahaisha, a person who doesn't have any recognizable features, neither of a male nor of a female, or a person who has both male and female features, and a woman, the das, as well as a baby or a young child who has not got understanding of what's going on, what he's doing. However, a child, even if he's under the age of bar mitzvah, as long as he understands what he is doing, it is learnt from Psukim that he would be fit to perform this act of sprinkling the para, the, the, the mechatos onto another person or item in order to purify it. Adds the Mishnah, A woman can assist this child who is able to do it. She can help him whilst he is sprinkling the mechatos. And she can hold the container of water for him to dip the azov into it and sprinkle it. As long as it's the child who is doing it and not the woman herself, it is valid. And he should be the one to dip the azov into the water and sprinkle it onto the person or item that's being purified. However, if she holds onto his hand, even at the time of the sprinkling apostle, then it would be invalid, because if she's holding onto his hand at that time, it's considered to be her action. 
she's at least involved in that action, and that would invalidate the act of sprinkling. The reason why the Mishnah says even in the time that he is sprinkling is because the source in the Torah for the fact that a woman is invalid for this is actually learnt from the dipping of the Azov into the water. That even for that she is invalid, and it's based on the comparison in the Pesukim that that same teaching from the Pasuk applies also to the sprinkling. But since the original source is said with regards to the dipping of the Azov into the Mechatos, that's why the Mishnah emphasizes over here that even with regards to the sprinkling, the service would be invalidated if the woman is involved in the actual act of sprinkling. And all the more so, she's involved in the act of dipping the Azov into the Mechatos, where it's learned explicitly from Pesukim that she is not fit to do so. Mishnah Yud Aleph, it is learned from Pesukim that the purification procedure that is carried out with the Mechatos, the water solution of the Paradum ashes, it must be performed during the daytime, and not only the sprinkling, but also the dipping of the Azov into the water. That's also part of the procedure, and it needs to be done at during the daytime. If he dipped the Azov into the water, into the Mechatos, during the daytime, and he sprinkled the water on it during the day, then kosher, it is valid. However, by Yoim, if he dipped it into the Mechatos during the daytime... The Hizabalailo, but he sprinkled it on in, during the night, Balailo Hizbayoim, or if he dipped it into the water during the night and he sprinkled it during the day, Possible, the purification procedure would be invalid. Now, a person who becomes Tommy from a dead body is Tommy for seven days. And in order to be purified, he needs to be sprinkled with the Mechatos on the third day and the seventh day. As well as that, he also needs to go to the mikveh on the seventh day in order to be fully purified. And in general, he would need to go to the mikveh, where he immerses himself fully in a collection of natural rainwater. He would need to do so after being sprinkled with the mechatos for a second time, but not beforehand. The next part of the Mishnah talks about a case where the person didn't manage to get sprinkled with the pora aduma ashes, the, the mechatos, on the seventh day. So, for example, he only did it on the eighth day. That's okay, it's still valid, he would still be purified. And in this case, he would be able to go into the mikveh even before being sprinkled with the ashes of the Pora Aduma. Once seven days have passed, for example, on the eighth day, even during the night time, he would be able to go to the mikveh. The entire requirement that the purification procedure needs to be done during the day is only with regards to the sprinkling of the mechatos. But with regards to going to the mikveh, he himself can go to the mikveh during the night time, for example, on the eighth night, and then be sprinkled with the paraduma during the next day. Ends off the Mishnah and the This is a new law, even though she'ein implies that it's a continuation. Over here, this is a new law that the sprinkling of the paraduma can only be done from Neitzachamo, which is sunrise. That's ideally the earliest time that it can be done, the earliest time that we consider it to be day. But in any of the cases where they did perform the procedure after dawn, when the first rays of light can be seen, even before sunrise itself, strictly speaking, that is considered to be the beginning of the day. Ideally, the Chacham said that one should always wait until Neitzachama, until sunrise, 
so that he can be certain that it is indeed the daytime. But strictly speaking, the daytime begins from dawn already, and therefore if they did perform the procedure already after dawn, once they've done so, kosher, it would be valid, and the item or the person would be purified. Solik Masechas Par Mazeltov. We begin with Masechas Taris, and interestingly, the name of this Masechta is the same name as the Seder that we are in. We're in the middle of Seder Taris, and the name of the Masechta is Taris Tahoris, and many general laws with regards to Tumah are discussed in this Masechta. The first couple of Prokim talk about Tumas Eichlin, which is the impurity that applies to food. There are many different levels of impurity. For example, the most severe type of impurity is Avia Vaisa Tumar, which literally means the father of the fathers of Tumar, and that only applies to a dead body. Most sources of impurity are on the level of an Avha Tumar, a literally a father Tumar, and each time the Tumar, the impurity is transferred onwards to another item, in the vast majority of cases, the impurity goes down one level. So if something touches a avhatumah, source of impurity, they will become a rishon latumah, which is one step removed, one level lower than an avhatumah. There are certain cases where something will become an avhatumah, even though the source of the impurity was also on that same level. However, even in those scenarios, food can never become an avhatumah. Food, as well as liquids, they are only ever able to become a rishon latumah. So even in a case where they become Tommy from a dead body, in general, something that becomes Tommy from a dead body becomes on the level of an avhatumar. A food or drink would only be a rishon latumar. And there is a very fundamental difference between an avhatumar and a rishon latumar, because people and objects can only become Tommy if they have contact with an avhatumar, and then they will become a rishon latumar. But if a person or object touches a rishon latumar, they will not become Tommy because the lowest level of impurity that applies to a person is a Rishon Latumah, at least according to the Torah. There are certain rabbinic stringencies that would apply even lower levels of impurity to objects and people. Now, food items can become Tomei from a Rishon Latumah, and then the food will become a Shani Latumah, which is two levels lower than an Avhatumah, and that's the lowest level of impurity that applies to regular food. Truma and the meat of Carbonis, they can become Tomei even on a lower level of impurity that would apply to them. Be it as it may, food can only ever be a Rishon Tuma. That having been said, there is one type of food which is actually a source of impurity, an Avha Tuma, but that's got nothing to do with the fact that it's food. A Nevela, a dead animal, as well as being forbidden to eat because it didn't receive a proper slaughtering which would permit it to be eaten, is not only forbidden to eat it, but it's also a source of impurity. With regards to regular animals, if somebody either touches or even he just carries the Nevela, a piece of the Nevela, he becomes impure on the level of a Rishanatuma, one level lower than the Avhatuma that the Nevela is. However, a bird that dies and becomes a Nevela is not a source of impurity. If somebody touches or carries it, they will not become Tomei. However, if somebody eats it, then it is a source of impurity, and the person will become Tomei from it, and he'll become a Rishon Latumar. It's also important to realize that there is an additional difference in that this only applies to a Nevela of a kosher bird. A kosher bird that died without a proper slaughtering, if somebody eats it, it's forbidden to eat it because it didn't receive a proper slaughtering, but as long as it's from a kosher species, then this impurity would apply. Otherwise, it's not a source of impurity at all, other than the fact that it is a food item. We can't forget that apart from the fact that this is a source of impurity intrinsically, 
it is also something that can be eaten. So in a case where it is designated to be eaten, for example, somebody wants to sell it to a non-Jew for the non-Jew to eat it. So then the regular laws of Tumas Eichlin, impurity that applies to foods, will apply to it. And that's not limited to birds or animals. Kosher, not kosher, that applies as long as it's designated for food. There are 13 different laws that the Mishnah is going to list with regards to a kosher bird that died without receiving a a proper slaughtering, which would permit it to be eaten. Number one, in order for the laws of Tumas Eichlin, Tumas of regular food, to apply to it, it requires intention and designation in one's mind that he intends that it be eaten. For example, he intends to sell it to a non-Jew. But if, for example, he thinks that he's going to just throw it away, then it is never considered to be a food and it wouldn't become impure, at least with regards to the laws of Tumas Eichlin. It would still be a novella, but the difference is that if somebody just touches it, he won't become Tome, except for because of the, of the fact that it is an item of food. The fact that it is an intrinsic source of impurity itself only applies to somebody who eats it. Number two, the rule is that food can only become Tome if at some point it has become wet. It doesn't need to be wet at the time that it becomes Tome, but it must have become wet at some time beforehand, at least. This is called Hechsher Lakabutuba, when it becomes fitting to become impure. However, it is learned from Psukim that an item that has intrinsic impurity in it, it itself is a source of impurity on an even higher level. The Hechsher, it does not require Hechsher Lakabutuba, it doesn't need to become wet in order for it to be fit to become impure. So since this dead bird is a source of impurity, if somebody were to swallow it, it therefore does not require becoming wet in order to be tome, also with the regular impurity that applies to food items. Number three, it can make other foods impure based on the fact that it itself is a food, only if it's at least the size of a kabeitza, the size of an egg. The rule is that food items can only be make other foods tome if they are at least that size. However, the minimum size that is needed for one who eats it to become Tome is if a size of an olive of the novella reaches his throat, he swallows and eats at least a kazais, the size of an olive, he would become impure. Because this is the minimum size for it to be considered eating. Just like all of the mitzvahs that one needs to eat, for example, one needs to eat matzah. The minimum amount that he needs to eat is a kazais, because that's the minimum amount that is considered to be a significant eating. Over here, we're more interested in the act of eating than than the contact with the item, and therefore the minimum size is a smaller amount of an olive. Continues the mission of the Ha'oichla, one who eats this novella, this dead bird, in order for him to be purified, he needs to immerse himself fully in a mikvah, a collection of natural rainwater. However, even once he has done that, the Ha'oichla Ton Harev Shemesh, one who eats it, needs to wait until the sun goes down. He needs to wait until the fo- that night begins in order for him to be fully purified, and in between the time that he has been to the mikveh and the end of that day, he is called a tavul yoim. A tavul yoim refers to somebody who has been to the mikveh on that day, and he has a low level of impurity until night. One who becomes tome as a result of eating the food, if he entered into the base hamikdash whilst he was impure, he will be liable to the punishment which applies for doing so. If he did it on purpose, he will be liable to Kores, where he is, so to speak, cut off from Hashem, the most severe punishment. And if he did it unintentionally, then he would be obligated to bring a Korban Chatos.
a particular sacrifice to atone for that sin. This cannot apply to somebody who just touches the food, because in general a person does not become impure at all if he touches food which is tome. The only way that the person is going to become tome over here is if he eats it. If truma becomes impure, truma is the food that is given to Kranim and it has sanctity to it, if it becomes impure then it needs to be burned. So the Mishnah says, if the has a truma, we would burn truma based on impurity that comes from the novella, even if it just touches it, because the truma is food, and food that touches impure food becomes tome. Especially truma that can become tome even on lower levels. Now the Mishnah lists something that applies to the bird while it's still alive, so technically speaking, out of the 13 things that the Mishnah is talking about, not all of them are necessarily with regards to a novella of the kosher bird, because the next law applies to a bird when it's still alive. But the Mishnah says, one who eats a limb from the bird that was separated from the bird while it was still alive, he would receive 40 lashes, he would receive malchus. The Mishnah is coming to say that the prohibition of eating a limb that was separated from an alive animal applies not only to regular animals, but also to birds, at least according to the opinion of this Mishnah. The next part of the Mishnah talks about a trefa. Trefa refers to an animal that has a particular wound that means that it's going to die within the next year. Such an animal is forbidden to eat, even if one slaughters it with a proper shechita, proper valid slaughtering. It is still forbidden to eat such an animal. However, if a proper act of slaughtering was performed on that animal, then it would not be a source of impurity. A novella, which is an animal that dies by itself without a proper valid slaughtering, that is a source of impurity. But a trefa, although it's similar to a novella in that it cannot be eaten, since an act of slaughtering was performed on it, that saves it from being a source of impurity. That is with regards to regular animals. The Mishnah brings a argument now as to how this applies to birds. And just before we see that, the Mishnah is going to mention a concept of malika. Malika is when a bird is brought as a carbon. Instead of slaughtering it in the regular way, using a knife, the koyen would slaughter it using his right thumbnail, which would be very sharp and long, and he would cut the back of the neck of the bird. And in general, we consider that essentially to be in place of the shechita, and it's basically equivalent to the regular slaughtering that we that would be done on the bird if it wasn't a carbon, and on regular animals even when they are a carbon. Says the Mishnah, If somebody slaughters or he performs malika with his thumbnail on a bird that is a trefa, the dead bird would not be a source of impurity. That's the opinion of a mayor that understands that it's no different to an animal that is a trefa and was slaughtered with a valid slaughtering. And even though there's no such thing as malika with regards to animals, since malika is essentially a replacement of shechita, a regular slaughtering with a knife, so the same would apply. The act of slaughtering or malika would not save the bird from being a source of impurity, because the entire law that is learnt from Pesukim, that if somebody slaughters a trefar, it does not become a source of impurity, that is stated with specifically with regards to animals, and according to Rabbi Yehuda, we are not able to learn birds from animals. Rabbi Yehuda says that we are able to learn the law of birds from the law of regular animals, but that means that we can only limit it to that which we found with the regular animals. So, Shechitosa mitaheres. If one slaughters the bird with a regular slaughtering, he's not bringing it as a carbon, so he uses a knife to slaughter it, so then it would not be a source of impurity, just like when a regular animal that is a trefa is slaughtered. 
but if one performs malika on the bird, then it would not prevent it from becoming a source of impurity, because there's no source for such an idea, because the entire law was stated with regards to animals, and over there, there's no such thing as malika. As we explained, Ruby Meir understands that since malika is essentially just a replacement of shechita, an identical law would apply.